listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Please turn once again your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, reading from the verse number 1 down through to the end of verse number 8. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Reading through uh, Revelation, there are many uh, believers who make very good progress through chapters 1 through 5. They have a good idea of the meaning and they're thrilled, often thrilled to see Christ, uh, the slain Christ on the throne. Then the page turns to chapter 6, and if we're honest, panic sets in. There are seals and horses and fourth parts and all manner of things that are certainly perplexing at best. What could these things possibly mean? When are these things going to happen? Are they already happening? Are they sequential, one after the other? Are they all concurrent? Well, to help us understand these things, first and foremost, we must not forget what precedes. It's a fundamental rule of biblical interpretation that the context leads into the next section. There's a preceding context. First and foremost, Christ is giving John a revelation to churches that are suffering, persecuted churches thereby implying that the contents that are given have immediate relevance to their situation. So what we see in chapter 6 has something to say to the churches in Asia in the first century. Also true that Christ in glory, he knows the churches and their troubles. He knows what's required to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to instruct them in the path in which they are walking. Thirdly, in these things we should not forget, God is on the throne. And that throne is surrounded by the rainbow. In other words, the world is stable for God to keep his covenantal mercies. 
We saw that the throne indicates the stability of the world under the rule of God, and the world is stable for the unfolding of God's covenant of grace and mercy. Fourthly, we saw that God's will is predetermined and pictured by a sealed book, a sealed scroll written on both sides. The full compendium of history contained in this sealed book. We also noticed, fifthly, that Christ, the lion lamb, has in his death and by death secured the unfolding of this history. That through his work, redemption will be accomplished and indeed in time judgment will fall upon the ungodly. This background is vital. There is again a flow. Verse number one of chapter six, and I saw. There's a connection from what precedes Christ in heaven on the throne, the lion lamb, takes the book, looses the seals, and then there is activity that is seen on the earth. The seals that are opened, verse number six, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, the seals, when they're opened, has the sense of a command to execute what's contained in the book. God's will being done. That's what it says in verse 1. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. Thunder speaks of the voice of God. It is like the seal is opened, the scroll is read, and God says, let it be done. Think of Sinai. You think of Christ's voice as the voice of thunder, and you're hearing the voice of God. And so John, he's hearing the thunder and the beasts then say, the living creatures say, come and see, come and see what is taking place on the earth. And so we think of these first four seals. They have, a, if you like, a subsection of their own because there are similarities. They are presented by the four beasts, the four living creatures. They contain four horses and four riders, and there's events that flow in light of these four seals. So you've four seals, four beasts, four horses, more than likely the four, number four, signifying completion, and also the four corners of the earth. Now these events are happening in every part of God's creation. It's part of the symbolism here, more than likely, of these four horses, often known as the four horses, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That in itself is a, perhaps a helpful understanding. These, these horses are symbolic. They are apocalyptic pictures of the work of God in the world. Now, my focus tonight will be on the white horse. The white horse, and he that sat on the white horse, who had a bow and a crown given unto him. But in order to appreciate the encouragement that we see in this symbol of the white horse, it might help to glance at the second, third, and fourth horses. The second horse is red, verse number four. It's red, indicating blood, and there is power given to the one that rode that horse to take peace from the earth. In other words, this horse indicates the place of war on the world. War, bloodshed, these things taking place, and there was given unto him a great sword. And the sword mentioned there is the sword of battle, the sword of war. 
Again, somewhat we lose some of the imagery here in that we often think of horses in different ways. They may be working horses or they may be horses that are, that are raced in some fashion. Here, of course, in Bible times, the horse spoke of war. Some trust in horses. The idea of war is crucial here. And so you're seeing this red horse really as the one who is given permission to remove peace from the world and war that will follow the third horse, the black horse, has a significant relevance to our present day and age. It speaks of economic distress. The pair of balances in the hand of the one that rode the black horse. Balances, speaking of trade and commerce. And then what you see in verse number 6, a measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny, a penny a day's, a day's wages. And these are greatly inflated prices. This is economic inflation, causing famine and hardship upon those suffering in such a time. Economic distress. The fourth horse, known as a pale horse, and we might think of pale as in a, as a, maybe an off-white or a, a pale shade. This word pale actually has the idea of, of a greenish color. More likely to do with the idea of rottenness and corruption, even akin to death. And so you see what it says, and his name that was sat in him was death, and hell followed with him. And now maybe the kids will come back to this. I think the idea of hell here may well refer to the grave, the place of the dead. But you'll see the power given to the one who sat there, the fourth part of the earth, over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. So what you're seeing here is really all of these coming together in the idea of death that follows through war with sword, through hunger, through the famines that come, with death, more than likely a reference to natural disease, and then with the beasts of the earth, perhaps a metaphor for natural disasters. This fourth horse is bringing death upon a fourth part of the earth. All of this, I think, has a parallel in the language of Matthew chapter 24. Turn back to Matthew 24, and you'll know Matthew 24, of course, contains the Olivet Discourse, the words of Christ, as he warns the people of AD 70 and the judgment that will fall from the hands of the Romans, but also speaks of Christ's return. And in the section that presents the warnings regarding Rome's invasion of Jerusalem, you'll see verse number 6, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And it is very likely that what the Lord is referring to here are the events in the first century that precede the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70, these preceding signs, but those signs are the beginning of sorrows, literally the birth pangs of the sorrows that will continue until the time of Christ's return. And so you're seeing here the events likely in Matthew 24, paralleled in Revelation chapter 6, events that take place in the entire period between Christ's ascension and his second coming. Events of war and famines, economic distress and disease and death. Surely every century has seen these events since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and High. These are things that happen in every generation. 
There are wars and famines and death and economic turmoil. All of these things happen in every generation without fail. I was thinking just of our own memories, perhaps memories that we have personally, or memories that our parents or our grandparents could pass on and back that far in my mind, and what things could our grandparents have told us about regarding their day and generation. You take the First World War. Different estimates, but perhaps 40 million people killed in connection with the First World War. You take the Spanish flu of 1918. The estimates of around 50 million people killed in connection with the Spanish flu of 1918. Second World War, somewhere between 40 and 50 million people killed. You take the evil reign of Pol Pot in Cambodia, perhaps 2 million people killed in a few months. Or Rwanda, 1994, just under 1 million people killed in the genocide in Rwanda, 1994. Are you taking the last two years? And without getting into the debates of the cause, WHO estimating 14.9 excess, million excess deaths in the past two years than what you expect to see in a normal situation. Undoubtedly, we are living in times when these horses are going throughout the world, executing the will of God, seeing great distress upon humanity, these horsemen symbols of God's working in the world as his wrath is revealed in the world. There is an Old Testament parallel that we're not going to go back to. You can go back in your own time. That's Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 6 where there's a reference to horses and chariots and the pictures are of these people, these horses doing the will of God in the world. What we should note, verse number 8, is that the power was given over the fourth part of the earth, indicating this is not the final judgment. Later on in Revelation, you'll see the third part. Here, the fourth part is just indicating this is, not a, this is not the destruction of the entirety of the human population as there was in the days of Noah. There is mercy and wrath. And in wrath, God remembers mercy. And there's God's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. All of these things are seen in the pictures here of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Events that occur throughout the centuries. Events that the churches in Asia Minor were themselves familiar with. They were conscious of these things in their own day as we are in our generation. So what then does the white horse signify? Or should I say, who is it that sits upon the white horse? Now some, some suggest it refers to the earthly ruler Domitian. They look at the pictures of these four horses, um, particularly the destruction that is caused, and they say, well, the conquering here refers to the Roman emperor Domitian in all of his evil conquering the world. Others suggest it's refer a reference to the devil or Antichrist, having an appearance of Christ but conquering the world in evil. Now, again, there are arguments to put upon those decisions or those uh, interpretations, but I think the overwhelming evidence is that here we see Christ on the white horse. Now, those of you I think raised in this context will probably have already gone to that interpretation. But let's take some time to try to prove that afresh today before bringing some words of application. Proof number one, 
the immediately preceding context, the immediately preceding context. In the previous chapters, we have been shown the reigning Christ. Look back at Revelation chapter 3 and the verse number 21. Here, of course, the letters to the churches, and the Lord says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am sat down with my Father in his throne. Just take note of the reference there, even as I also overcame. And then chapter 5, verse number 5, where the elders say to John, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Overcame, Revelation chapter 3, 21, prevailed, Revelation 5, verse 5. And what is of note is that overcame, Revelation 3, and prevailed, Revelation 5, is the same word now translated conquered in Revelation chapter 6. So in all three places, the same root word is used to indicate the work of Christ, one who overcame, one who prevailed, and now in Revelation chapter 6, one who is said to go forth conquering and to conquer. Same word. It's notable that Revelation chapter 5 closes with the adoration of the lion lamb, and Revelation chapter 6 opens with the scene of one on the white horse, and I suggest that you need to have a very strong argument not to see Christ as the one upon the white horse. Indeed, Christ as the conqueror could be argued as the theme of the entire book. From chapter 1 to chapter 22, it could simply be summarized, Christ overcame, Christ conquered, Christ wins. So the immediate context of one conquering speaks of Christ and without any other explanation, we should see Christ, I believe, in chapter 6, verse number 2. Secondly, we should note the later parallel reference here. And that's chapter 19, verse 11 and following. Turn to chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now without doubt, the faithful and true, the Word of God, is a reference to Christ. That is, without a shadow of a doubt. And the parallels are so close that it would need an extremely clear reason to argue for different persons upon the white horses. Oh yes, there are differences. Chapter 19, verse 12, refers to many crowns. Verse 13 refers to his vesture dipped in blood. Now, more of this later, but what you're seeing in chapter 19 is a later phase of Christ's conquest. It's like the final phase as he conquers his enemies in judgment. But for now, we're simply saying that these parallels are strong proof that the one upon the white horse in chapter 6 is Christ himself. So you have the immediately preceding context. You have the later parallel reference. And thirdly, you have the much earlier prophetic psalm. Turn back to the Psalm 45, please. The Psalm 45, and you'll see again here, 
words and language that sound very familiar in light of Revelation chapter 6. And psalmist here, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made, touching the king. And then listen to verse number 3. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Listen, thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Now, here we see parallels. We see a king riding. He is riding in majesty, verse number 4. We see a reference to arrows, verse 5. Then arrows are sharp. Indeed, in the Greek translation of this portion, it says in the verse number 4, And in thy majesty ride, and bend the bow, and prosper and reign. The Greek translation has added this idea of the, of the bow being used, the bow referred to in verse number 5, by the arrows being sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. I said, well, is, is Christ referred to in Psalm 45? Could it not be a reference to, to Solomon or some other Jewish king? Well, we know from Hebrews chapter 1, Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Quoting, of course, verse number 6 of Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. And the parallels, again, are so clear now, it seems very likely that this is being used even by the Lord in the images of Revelation chapter 6 with the one upon the white horse. Fourthly, you see the picture itself. The crown is given to him. A crown was given unto him. That corresponds to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, in the verse number 14, where it says this, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. And here we see Christ with the crown. We think of the whiteness here, the white that speaks of holiness and heaviness, not fitting an earthly tyrant or the devil or the empty Christ, but Christ himself. And so for all of these reasons, it seems very, very likely that Christ is in view here, the one who in his death secures the authority, the power to take the book, to loose the scrolls. And the first seal refers to his work. Now, one of the things that people get caught up with is, well, how can Christ open the scroll and be the first symbol in the scroll? Why not? It's symbolic language. There's no reason for him not to be the first thing out of the scroll. And of course, is that not the very purpose of God in human history? That when the scroll is opened, Christ goes forward, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Is that not God's purpose in the world? Is it not very fitting that Christ is seen in the first seal that is opened? with his arrows, the arrows of the word, swiftly conquering the hearts of his enemies? Is that not what we see Christ doing? Praise his name. And so if we are to see Christ here, well, there are some very simple things of application. We should understand the phases of Christ's conquest. He has conquered, he is conquering, and he will conquer. 
That sense of the phases of Christ's work. We understand that on the cross there was that decisive victory. He has prevailed. We know that from chapter 5. The past tense idea of Christ's conquering. He has defeated principalities and powers. He's made a show of them openly, triumphing over them as our sins are nailed to his cross. But whilst that is the case, we also see him going forth, conquering, and to conquer. There's a progressive, ongoing aspect of his reigning over his enemies, subduing those rebels to his will. What a motivation this is to pray for the ungodly. We have a picture of Christ here. He's going to conquer. And we're praying, oh, blessed Savior, do your best work in our day. May souls come to bow the knee to your kingly authority. You have the crown and the bow in your hand. And yes, at the same time, we see all his, all his enemies in one day will eventually be found under his feet. And in that time, his vesture will be dipped in the blood of his enemies as all enemies are cast into judgment itself. And so, if we think of the phases of Christ's conquering, we should remember that in the midst of the tragedies of this world, Christ rides conquering souls. In all the death and disease and economic turmoil, oh, great Christ upon the white horse is riding from corner to corner, subduing nations and bringing people in conformity to God's will. The other horses are under Christ's control. The picture here is of Christ riding in the forefront and the other horses under his rule. Christ even using these other disasters and catastrophes in the world to save and to sanctify his people and indeed to judge the wicked. And so one word of final encouragement. We have noted the connection in the language. Christ has overcame. Christ has prevailed. Christ has conquered. And so that is the ground and the reason whereby we can conquer and we can overcome as we follow in the train of our conquering Christ King. You live in defeat today. You need to take your eyes upon this vision of the King upon the white horse conquering. You need to see the glory and the majesty of your Christ and realize you're on his side. You don't need to fear and wonder and panic about this world. You can overcome, though the world is difficult, though there's death and disease and famine and all these things. You can overcome through the blood of the Lamb. The word of his testimony. Christ encouraged the disciples, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.